the response in the body is very much the same, but your interpretation of those feelings is going to make a very big difference. It's going to be, oh, I, I feel this nervous excitement. I can't wait to get on stage. I'm so excited to sing to my audience. They are really excited to be here. You know, maybe that type of self-talk versus, oh, I feel terrible. That must mean something is wrong. This is going to be a disaster and they're all going to shout boo at me. Right, so this was all just, this just depends on how my brain decides to speak about my physical and emotional experience and how it decides to interpret it. Hello and welcome to And If Love Remains. Uh, today is, uh, we're recording this a little bit early, but uh, we're going to be publishing this on January 1st, New Year's Day, a perfect day to talk a little bit um, about um, our, our subject today. And, and I'm excited to have with us uh, Dr. Elias Axel Pedersen, Mr. Piano Maestro. Um, <laughs> I think I might call you the, the director or our resident director of music of and, and If Love Remains, Elias. <laughs> and uh, we also have a special guest. <laughs> we also have a special guest uh, today, uh, Ingela Onsted. And I am thrilled to have her on. I, I couldn't be more pleased. It was actually uh, um, Elias who 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 uh, turned me on to, to some of the things that, that she's talking about. She is a singer um, with a, um, a great uh, um, repertoire in, in, in operatic singing. She's also um, a therapist, a licensed therapist. Um, and she has, um, has focused in on... Um, performance anxiety. Um, she has a website, courageousartistry.com, and we'd like very much to welcome um, Ingla to the show. Welcome. Yes, thank you. Thank you both for having me. It's it's my pleasure, and and um, I'd really love to to hear your story a little bit. Um, um, let's talk first a little bit about your um, as a singer. Um, you know, talk about you know, did you always sing and and and. Um, you know, kind of some of your career highlights, some of the things that, that you've done and some, you know, and, and maybe um, talk about some of the struggles you had, um, you know, with, with performance anxiety or, or, yeah, just tell us a little bit about your story. Sure, sure. So um, I think like a lot of musicians out there, when I was growing up, the only thing I wanted to do was be a musician. And I played piano and oboe, and then I got into singing lessons, and that was really just it for me. Um, I just thought I want to become an opera singer. Now, when I was young, I didn't know what that meant, what that took, what I had to do. But, you know, when you're young, you kind of don't know any better. And so I pursued classical singing and, uh, you know, had a bit of aptitude for it. But um, I, I don't like to use the T word talent because I think it's overused and people tend to just um, treat you as if you were born with all of these gifts and you don't have to work at them. And I think that that's oftentimes really sort of a slap in the face to us musicians yes. out there, right? That to say that we didn't have to work very hard at what we you do have in fabulous order to be good skills. at it. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So I had maybe a little bit of natural aptitude. Um, and then I, I devoted myself to the study of singing and I got a bachelor um, of music degree at McGill University in Montreal. And then after that, shortly thereafter, I moved to Germany. And I lived in Germany for about a decade. Um, and I first, when I first moved there, I was there uh, with my then boyfriend, who then became my husband. And um, 
he's German. And so we were there sort of uh, on his turf and he was working and I was looking for jobs and I nannied and I uh, worked retail and I was learning German at the time and we got married. And then eventually I got some jobs working in opera houses and operetta. I did some professional chorus and then I did um, some you know, solo roles in different places. And I really thought that that was going to be the rest of my life that I was going to stay in Germany and just uh, dedicate my myself to opera there. That was always my dream. And then, you know, as life does, it took some turns and twists, some unexpected things. And anyway, I ended up moving back to the United States in 2000, I guess, 12 it was, so eight years ago. And at the time when I left Germany, I knew that I would be giving up my sort of operatic career as I had planned it for my, for my whole career. I thought, you know, when right. I moved back to the United States, it's a whole different industry here. You're really a freelancer in Germany. You're working and living in a certain city and you have a contract for a few years at a time, which is a very you know humane way of running things. But back here, you're definitely a freelancer and uh, living out of a suitcase much of the time. And I knew that that wasn't really the life for me anymore. So I decided to get a master's degree in voice because I thought I might want to go the academic route. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I did that. I ended up not choosing academia. Um, but what I decided during that time was I was thinking of other things I had been interested in in my life. And I've always been the person that everybody came to uh, to talk with when they had issues going on in their lives. Always kind of right. the shoulder that people would lean on in that way. Um, I think there's, you know, one or two of those in every group of, of people. And so thinking about doing something psychology related just felt like a natural fit. And I ended up getting a Master of Arts degree in counseling. And now I'm a licensed mental health counselor here in the state of New Mexico, also sometimes referred to as therapist or psychotherapist, just depending on where you live and what you're familiar with. And uh, at the time I was, or all of this time in these past eight years that I've been back in the States, I've still been performing a lot, mainly locally and regionally. Um, and then pursuing my, my therapy practice on the side. I was also, I taught voice privately for a decade. So I was kind of wearing all of these hats. And then one day it dawned on me that, uh, you know, why, why couldn't I kind of figure out a way to help performers, you know, musicians and other performers with their mental health, because I know that all of that was still lacking in my life. So I ended up um, launching this business, Courageous Artistry, where I specialize in doing coaching work. It's a little bit different than the therapy work I do, because in coaching, I can um, do it with anybody all over in anywhere in the world, which is awesome. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas in therapy, you're really uh, relegated to working within the state where you're licensed. Um, so coaching becomes kind of a, a happy medium so that I can reach more people, not do specific therapy work with them, but still work on mental and emotional uh, wellness related things. But, um, right. kind of circling back to what you had asked Mike about my own, uh, performance anxiety and my own experience there. Um, I don't know if the two of you will relate to this, but many people I speak with, I think can relate strongly to this. I don't even know if I had labeled it at the time that I was having performance anxiety. I think for me, this sort of overall anxiety that I felt in my career on stage or in rehearsals or going to auditions was just part of the business. It was just part of being a performer. And it was so much just kind of like the wallpaper. It was just there. And right. now, you know, being older and having more perspective and a whole different degree and, and career in this, I can look back on my younger self and see how much um, 
my own self-doubt and anxiety often held me back. It prevented me from maybe taking advantage of as many opportunities as I could have. Or um, I think the classic example in my life was um, kind of always feeling like, oh, well, I'm not ready to go do that thing yet. I'm not ready to show up here and sing for these people Mm. or audition for this program or go here because I still need to work on myself. So it it showed up a lot in, in ways of just making me feel like I was kind of in the eternal preparation state and never always never really ready to, to take full action. Um, that's wonderful. That's, that's yeah. an interesting way to think of it. Cause I think a lot of people, I know I felt that way too, that, that you're never, you're never quite ready. And so you keep procrastinating the day when, when the fact is you're probably, you're only ready when you, when you say, you're, I, I don't know the answer yeah. to that, but that, that's, that's the, that's an interesting take. On right. That. Yeah. I think it's, it's sort of, I didn't have the classic stage fright where I was terrified to actually go on the stage. I mean, I always have a sort of normal and healthy amount of, of nerve nervous system activation when I'm about to go into a rehearsal or a performance, but it was nothing ever debilitating. Um, but I think for me, it showed up more in ways of, of kind of planning out my career and thinking about steps I wanted to take and uh, taking advantage of opportunities or not. So I always like to say that even though I have to kind of call it performance anxiety because that becomes a blanket term, when I work with performers, I'm really working on all of the types of, of self-doubt or imposter syndrome or anxiety that show up in a lot of ways in our lives and affect our, our careers and sort of our identity as an artist in many different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and, and you're talking about this. I think there's also another, um, and Elias, feel free to to, to jump in. I, I just I, the thought that that I have um, is especially, you know, being a performer, you have all kinds of pressures and all kinds of um, different, I guess, anxieties, different things that are kind of that kind of compound on top of each other. Getting ready for, and then the performance itself, and and all of those things. And I think. Um, being flexible and and i think that's one of the things as as artists um especially in 2000 and 2020 terms um you know like like that adds just another whole element of of okay am i going to perform how is this going to performance do i do it on zoom i mean there's so yeah. many other aspects that all of a sudden um, it becomes even more anxiety ridden i think yeah, it has been yeah. for me yeah, me too. Me too, for sure. I'm, I'm the only concerts I've been doing this year, and I'm preparing for one that's we're doing a recording next week. Have all been, you know, either live streamed or pre-recorded. And I'm a live musician. I don't record things, generally speaking. So just getting used to the recording process, the fact that it's out there in the world for all to hear for posterity, and you know, or putting things on social media. These are things that I'm working with on a with a lot of clients right now, and just getting over their anxiety about putting their material out there into the world in a different form than they've ever done before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll you know, just say, it's, yeah, I, yeah I was, I, it's interesting with, with social media. I mean, um, you know, I'm, I'm 40 and I grew up with, uh, I, I remember when the internet started and um, you know, we, we got our first computer at home and things like that. And uh, it's, it's a lot different world right now for high schoolers. I, I also teach a lot of high school age students. I, I teach in high school as well. And the kinds of pressures that they have are, um, you know, each generation is different, but they have so many more pressures, I feel, than, uh, than we had to deal with. Um, so the quantity is more, I don't know if the quality has changed, but it's just, uh, they, they really have to worry about that. And, you know, I've, I've made recordings and I know, and I've performed, and it's, it's a very different kind of feeling that you get, a different kind of nervousness or anxiety, as you would say, uh, 
performing versus recording. And yeah, it, it's like Mike said, 2020, uh, it's really a time to reflect and, and see where we're at. So I think what you're talking about is very important these days. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I'm also 40. And so I, I, you know, I can recall exactly when social media be started becoming a bigger part of my life. And um, it's then to even have to make the decision if we want to put things out there for the world to see in that way. Um, even that just making that decision can be fraught with a lot of anxiety and nerves. And yeah, my heart really does go out to the younger generation who have had to deal with this in, in a very much more intense, much more frequent way than than we ever had to, where it's almost like every day becomes a sort of performance of its own if you're posting something on social media. Yeah, mm. yeah that's true. Oh, that's, that's for sure. You know, uh, so this is uh, um, Mike Levitt. I'm with, uh, we're with... Uh, speaking with Ingela Onsted, um, also uh, Elias Axel Pedersen. This is And If Love Remains, and Ingela has a, a website called um, uh, Artist. I'm sorry, Courageous Artistry. <laughs> CourageousArtistry.com. Thank you. You're welcome. There was my anxiety right there. Yeah, I'm there we go. Everything. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, very pleased to have have her on, and and it is interesting that we bring this up because there is some, you know, I, I uh, to to paraphrase Neil Peart, who paraphrased Shakespeare, all the world's a stage and we are merely players, performers <laughs> and portrayers. Um, you know, it is, it's interesting. I think a lot of people are um, feeling more anxious because of I don't, social media, I think has definitely uh, amplified it, but um, you know, thing, the idea, the internet in itself, the idea that things will be out there forever. You know, if, you know, at least you, you, you perform a, a concert and, and, you know, maybe it didn't go quite perfectly. Um, you know, that's okay. People will come and congratulate you and, and you can kind of move on and, and okay, you, you can improve for the next performance, but you put it out there. It's there forever. Um, and I think that's a whole other set of, of just, whoa. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of kind of more existential fear. I think there it's, you know, in the moment, if I'm performing, okay, I might be judged in this moment, but then like you said, when the performance ends and, you know, I'm done talking to the audience and I go home, I can try my best to just assess what I would like to improve on for next time and what went well and what didn't go so well. And even if something didn't go very well, if in my estimation, it went really poorly, it was just maybe two hours of my life. Right. right. <laughs> I right. can get over that. But but yeah, if there's something being recorded live and then being streamed or we're I mean, most of the time, obviously, with social media, unless you're doing some type of live on social media, you can uh, make multiple takes. But but then that's its own process of getting in your head and deciding that nothing's ever good enough. And um, yeah, yeah. 2020 has been interesting. I think it's really uh, peaked that that anxiety of how do I put myself out there and also a lot of our existential anxieties about how do I make a living at my craft if I haven't if I'm not able to do it in the regular ways that I was doing it before mm -hmm. I find that what you're talking about and this goes to more of a systemic thing at, at our schools you you mentioned that you never learned this per se or, or had classes I, I think at least in most universities music schools are set up and we don't have the kind of training that many other fields have. I mean, I'll just compare to sports. You know, you've got uh, you've got your coach, but you've also got the trainers and you've got people, the the medics and everybody taking care, care of things to make sure you're really performing at your peak. And that's another performance. And in music school, I feel it's it's very disjointed. 
Um, you've got your, your primary teacher who teaches you either how to sing or how to play piano or guitar or whatever. And uh, you, you take your music theory and music history classes. There's not much talk about um, developing a career, whatever that means. There's not much talk about how to integrate all of these things, mental health. Um, you know, I've, I've studied Alexander Technique too. There's nothing mm -hmm. about how we're really using our body. Maybe you have a conscientious teacher, but I, I think what you're discussing is, is more holistic and bringing all of that together. Um, do you see any way that our culture or society will, will change or go towards that or start to make more use of those, those tools that we have? Um, I hope so. And, and really, you're, you're totally speaking my language here, Elias, because I always, uh, when I'm working with my private clients, I liken what we do to being an Olympian, where when you're performing at a very high level, and you've devoted most of your life to your craft, you have similar pressures. And you have also this lifestyle surrounding it that not many, um, quote unquote, civilians, <laughs> you know, non-performers, I think, can understand, you know, for example, I'm off of work right now in between the holidays. I'm not seeing any of my therapy or coaching clients, but I'm still practicing every day for an upcoming concert. So this is not time off for me. It's time that I have to spend doing something else if I want to still pursue my craft. But, but you're right. If we were, um, if we were into, if we were athletes, we would have a whole team of people that would be helping us. And I think that, um, in, and I can really only speak for, for, classical music because that's the realm that I know best. However, I do have clients who uh, work in, you know, Broadway or, or film or anything like that. And I, I don't think it's completely dissimilar that it's taboo to speak about your mental health. It's taboo to admit if you're struggling with something, because I think we have this very binary view that either you're once again, kind of going back to what I was saying at the beginning of our conversation, either you're born with this talent and you're never nervous and everything's great all the time, or you're just not good enough to make it in this field. Yeah. And, and because it is a highly competitive field, I think it, it becomes an, a self-perpetuating cycle of uh, don't talk about how you're really feeling or doing um, because that might make people think that you are somehow, and once again, heavy air quotes here, less talented or less able. And it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's very sad. And I think it's interesting that um, people are always, um, I, I hear frequently from people, oh, I didn't know that there was anybody out there doing work like you do. Yet, once again, if we're talking about athletics, we would know of sports psychologists that would have just been a part of our of our lives. So isn't it funny that in the realm of, of professional music or performing arts in general, that it becomes this strange taboo? Yeah, no, I, I think that's, that's a great point. Um, you know, th there are the people that might uh, need that attention for other, for other reasons and, and draw it upon themselves and always be crying out how difficult things are. And there are certainly in, in the music world, those personalities mm -hmm. um, are pretty apparent and, and maybe they're more frequent than in the general population, but you're right with injury or with mental health, anything that's sort of wrong with us, it's either binary, you know, you're perfect or, or you have, Oh man, you have issues in, in the piano world. You know, tendonitis is a big, big mm -hmm. thing. Uh, well, you should be practicing more. You have tendonitis. Well, you must not be very good or yeah. you must have some issues. And <laughs> mm -hmm. it, it only takes a couple major um, performers like, Grafman or, or Fleischer that had vocal dystonia and then people understand that oh this is actually you know an issue it's not through their own necessarily their own uh, wrongdoing yeah uh, and it's something really serious to deal with so yeah 
And isn't it sad that, you know, there, there's such sort of shaming involved that oh, yeah, you must have done something wrong. And this is very much true in the vocal community as well, that if people have had to have any type of vocal surgery or rehabilitation, it becomes this incredibly taboo topic. And I think only recently are people starting to speak about it more openly and normalizing the fact that whether we're talking about our mental or emotional health or our physical health, things go wrong and it's nobody's fault. Mm-hmm. You didn't necessarily do anything wrong. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's particularly hard with voice um, because that's so direct. It's like you are the instrument. So when you sing for somebody, there's such a judgment on on you. When yes. I play piano, if somebody doesn't like it, it's like, well, you didn't understand the music, or you know, it was a bad piano. I have so many excuses. Mm. I can. Yeah. Uh, there's that a singer doesn't, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. So thank you for mentioning that because I often envy instrumentalists <laughs> for that reason. That oh, this old thing, I'll just throw that instrument in the corner, and you know, I've got to walk around with mine every day. So, so it is. It's very personal, and of course, the sound of the human voice is is so distinctive, right? That only. Mm. I, I I only sound like myself and you only sound like yourself. So Mm -hmm. there is, there's, I think there are different um, types of anxieties and worries and and nervousness that crop up amongst the different types of, you know, I'll call them populations of musicians. Mm -hmm. Um, We we all kind of have our special brand of things to deal with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I, go ahead, Mike. I don't know if you have any thoughts. No, Go go ahead. I, I have things, but please continue. I'm thinking, you know, if we're just in the in the music realm, and I am curious about um, clients that you work with, either in therapy or or in coaching, that are from other realms, you know, not necessarily music, but just in the music realm. Uh, you mentioned working with people from other genres. I don't know if you've worked with. I assume you have jazz musicians or uh, pop musicians, and what might those um, those musicians bring to the table, and and are they different from? Yeah, classical musicians, just because maybe of the expectations in those in those genres. You know, that's um, that's an interesting question, and I I will say that I I tend to attract more of the classical crowd because that's sort of where I have my own personal reach and and where my you know the largest slice of my community is. Um, but I do have some people that I work with who uh, either do straight acting or do you know musical theater type things, and I would say that when it comes down to it, the human emotions behind all of this, just the root feeling, the most, one of our most base and basic emotions of fear, fear of judgment, fear of not being good enough, fear of rejection is a huge one. And that one is really based very deeply in our own biology because, you know, thinking back to Paleolithic times when we lived in in smaller groups, families, smaller tribes, had we been rejected from our group, that could have meant certain death for us. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we definitely all have a very, very deeply vested interest in other people's opinions and, and keeping the esteem and respect of other people. And I, I like to bring that up because I like to normalize that we worry about this and that it's important to us and that there's a reason why it's important to us, that we can't go around pretending um, that other people's opinions don't matter to us. Now, where it becomes problematic is when we start doing what we call mind reading and pretending as if we know what everybody else is thinking or feeling about us and start projecting things onto them. And then we start making decisions in our lives or our careers or our art based on what we assume other people are thinking or not thinking about us. So I think when it comes down to it, uh, regardless of the genre, we all just struggle with this 
desire to to be liked and accepted and then balancing that with how do that I also become my own unique artist with my own unique fingerprints so that I'm, I'm bringing something you know different to the world yeah wow that's that's yeah I think that's wisdom there that's that's big stuff um I I, I want to I have a theory and uh, it's nothing but a theory, so you know, <laughs> feel free to. It's okay to trash my theories. I'm just okay. giving you <laughs> um, my. Uh, but my theory is, you know, famously, um, Barbara Streisand was had terrible stage fright, mm-hmm. um, and 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 then also I think just as famously, you know, many many people who perform, you know, uh, I'm going to name names, you know, like Bruce Springsteen. You know, Billy Joel, for example, you know, they, they felt very excited to get on stage. They're, they're very, they, 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 um, and, and my theory is, is that, um, at the bottom of it, they were likely feeling very similar, if not the same things. Um, but just their interpretation of what they were feeling based on experience, based on their life, whatever was far different. Um, is that a fair theory? <laughs> yeah, actually, I think you're onto something there, Mike, and, and we'll have to, you know, uh, create a laboratory where we can test all this one day. But I right. think that, um, when it comes down to it biologically, what's happening when we are anxious or nervous or have stage fright or whatever we want to call it, what's happening biologically is we're going into fight, flight, or freeze. So our sympathetic nervous system, which is the part of the nervous system, the part of the autonomic nervous system responsible for that um, fight, flight, or freeze response, is getting us ready because something big is about to happen. Now, you know, speaking back to thousands of years ago, this would have prepared us to fight a wild animal or a, a warring tribe or whatever it might have been within our evolution. Um, and, you know, animals obviously have this too. Now, I say, I always make the joke that when we're in fight or flight, we're, our body is preparing to either fight the lion or run from the lion. But as performers, we have to walk on stage and stand next to the lion essentially and perform. Hmm. So I think that you're probably onto something saying that, you know, the response in the body is very much the same because biologically we're all we're all very very similar in that way but your interpretation and this is where the, the mental aspect the cognitive aspect comes in your interpretation of those feelings is going to make a very big difference it's going to be oh i i feel this nervous excitement i can't wait to get on stage i am so excited to sing to my audience they are really excited to be here you know maybe that type of self talk versus Oh, I feel terrible. That must mean something is wrong. This is going to be a disaster and they're all going to shout boo at me. Hmm. Right. So this was all just, this just depends on how my brain decides to speak about my physical and emotional experience and how it decides to interpret it. You know, sort of the lens through which we view our own experience. And um, I think for many people can really go up and down, maybe Uh, I know I've had some very bad performing experiences in my life, very traumatic performing experiences. I think most of us have, and you could be soaring along and everything could be going well. And all it takes is maybe one bad concert or one, one mishap somewhere. I don't know. Let's say uh, you, as a singer, for example, a common one for singers would be, I'm doing the same opera that I've done a hundred times. And suddenly in the middle of it, I forget the words and I have no idea what's going on. Right. Maybe my brain just took a little vacation for that moment. Well, that experience, you could just have that happen once within a decades long career and it could be enough to really, really knock down your confidence. So 
when I work with people on things like this, we definitely work very heavily on what is our self-talk doing? What are our thoughts doing? What is the lens through which we are viewing all of these experiences? And can we find a more kind, a more supportive, uh, a more positive lens through which to view things? We don't have to completely disregard the reality that sometimes things go wrong or that we may not always like what we what I just sang at that concert or how I sang it, and that's okay too. But can we sort of disarm the way we're talking to ourselves about ourselves and about our experiences. Is that a way of, of saying, or, or is there a way that, you, that I know it's impossible, but maybe somewhat that you can disassociate yourself from your performance or disassociate even yourself from, from your art in a sense, in the sense of saying like um, this, and it's as an artist is very difficult, but, but can you, or can one, say, this is my art, this is a reflection, but it is not me as a person. Is that a possibility? Yeah, I think that's a possibility. And I think that that's a really healthy balance to work towards. I think it's as, as both of you, I'm sure know, and I know this myself is that when you have this, once again, I hate the T word, but you know, this quote unquote talent, then you, people see you this way and people refer to you this way. Oh, you know, so-and-so is a musician. And they oftentimes, you know, I've been a therapist for years now and still people that I've known for a long time will introduce me as an opera singer mm. rather than a therapist, right? So there's right. this sort of vested interest that, that they have also in, in me being a certain way and whether it's family members or friends or, or colleagues, what have you. And of course, to be um, a successful artist and to make a living at it, you do have to have, uh, I believe, a very high amount of uh, dedication and devotion to the craft and the practice, a lot of discipline. You make a lot of sacrifices. Um, Like once again, I said, you know, if I wasn't a singer, I would be having a break right now. But I, you know, was rehearsing before I got on this call with the two of you and I have a rehearsal this afternoon. So, you know, this isn't this isn't a day off, but I'm happy to make that sacrifice because I, I value showing up as a singer in this world and, and presenting my craft. But I think that unfortunately, because we oftentimes receive a lot of attention for once again, being talented or having this you know gift or having this, this thing that we do out there in the world, some of us do uh, maybe not spend as much time as we could growing and developing the other parts of our lives making sure that we have a lot of baskets from which to draw our self-esteem because if we're only drawing our self-esteem from the musician basket, uh, that's a very precarious balance to maintain. So yes, to your question, I do think it's possible. And I think not only is it possible, but it's necessary. And I think that you bring more to your art. Um, You know, I, of course, I'm no longer a Oh, that's an interesting point. I was going to say that it's an interesting point that, that by, by doing that, it actually brings more to the art. I believe it does. I mean, I think the richness of my experience now having this sort of other career that I do um, means that when I go to do my singing, it's very purposeful. I've made a space for it in my life. I'm more choosy about what types of gigs I say yes to. Um, I I have a new richness of experience to bring to it. Um, Yeah, I I think that it's, it's too bad that we we have this once again, very binary view that either you're a musician or you're doing something else. But, you know, many musicians, as both of you know, we teach, we perform, we write, we maybe have other jobs. Does that make us any less of a musician? 
in my mind, certainly not. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you bring some of those up. You know, my fiance is also a pianist and we always, um, we listen to pianists and, and even though it's uh, not, it's an extension of who we are, it's not actually who we are, like the voice per se. Um, we always say that you can, you can hear someone's life for a little bit of who they are, how they are uh, through their music making. Uh, and I, for me, that's always been very important. And I've done, uh, like you, I've had other my my uh, hands in other baskets. I guess I've I've gone the science route. You know, I did pre med, bio, and, and undergrad, and and uh, I do chess. I play chess, and and all these different things. I um, yeah, they take time, and I'm glad you brought that up too. It's not just talent, or as many people say, oh genius. No, this little kid. Did you see him on YouTube? He's a genius. Um, and I remember watching one of those TED talks. I think it was Ken Robinson on education, and he uh, he talks about every kid's a genius. You know, it's uh, they all have talent. They all have possibility. And it's it's how much you work and how you hone those skills. Uh, and musicians, I don't think most people realize just how much time it takes to to hone those skills uh, as a musician. But um, back to your point that that all these things that you do really color your music making and they influence uh, influence your music making. And I think the greatest artists that I know that I respect um I mean, they've lived such interesting life. Like Rubinstein, I can think of yeah. as a classic example. Such such a colorful life, and his playing was so colorful as a result. Uh, and I think we need to strive for that and be a little bit more uh, all encompassing. And and to in today's world, I think it's it's getting harder and harder. Uh, we we have more competitions. There, there's more pressure to be more perfect with social media and with recording and all that. And uh, that that creates more anxiety and, and stage fright in and of itself. So, yeah, I think that holistic approach you're talking about is is important. Yeah, when I, when I work with clients, um, sometimes I surprise them because I say, let's actually zoom out and let's look at how you're doing in all of your life right now. And we talk about lots of different categories, whether you know career and financial, family, uh, love relationships, hobbies, fun, friendship, health. Um, your the environment in, in which you live, all of these different things, um, they are, they're so important. And, you know, I can just speak for my own experience that when I thought I was giving up my opera career and I, I moved back to the States and I, I honestly didn't know if I would ever sing professionally again, because, you know, I, I had based my career in a whole different continent and, and with a different set of connections. Um, it was, what this means for me now is that if something doesn't go well in my singing life, it's not the end of the world for me because I have other baskets from which to draw my self-esteem and my identity. I can show up in the world in, in different ways that I feel good about. So I can, I think, approach my singing with a little bit of a lighter touch. I don't, it, it doesn't have to always feel like such um, life and death when I get up on stage or when I go to an audition or when I submit my materials for a certain company or organization. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. That's... I have a little cute thing to bring up is, uh, as performers, we always get told, I remember even as a kid, my, my teacher recommended that, uh, you know, setting up all my stuffed animals or something and pretending they're famous <laughs> people or the, the one that, you know, pretend all the, the members of the audience are naked and you'll, you know, what, yeah. what do you say to those kinds of, of things are they are they helpful or uh, are there other ways to combat that yeah i mean i've i i could i could list a hundred different things that i think are helpful and um but i think that there is some actual wisdom into some of the sort of let's say maybe folk methods of, of performance anxiety management that we're all offered but yeah imagine that 
audience in their underwear or perform for your stuffed animals. I, I don't think that there's not value there, but I think where we maybe um, do a disservice in our community is that once again, we only maybe have the one or two mentors in our lives and these people are not trained in mental health and why should they be? That's not their area of expertise. Um, so I think if, if somebody finds the tips that their music teacher gives them helpful, then that's wonderful. Then probably that person is offering up something that's valuable. But where I like to draw the line is for the many people out there for whom that isn't helpful enough or it's not helpful all the time, there's nothing wrong with them. That that's also a completely normal experience. For some people, imagining the audience in their underwear is not going to be enough to tone down the sympathetic nervous system response. And so a lot of what I do with people when I work with them is just teach them um, some very specific breathing methods, teach them some very specific preparation methods, teach them very specific um, sort of routines and rituals that, that I have them build into their more everyday lives to uh, show them. And, you know, the same goes for actually the therapy clients that I work with who aren't musicians to show them, to, to show us that we have more control over our experience than we often know. However, most of the time, it's not going to be fixed by something quick. It's going to be fixed by a practice, by a more holistic mm. uh, way of living, by um, attending to our anxiety on a more daily basis to show ourselves and to empower ourselves to say, oh, when I start noticing that I'm going into my sympathetic nervous system response, here are 10 things that I can do to try to get myself into what's referred to as the parasympathetic nervous system response, which is sometimes referred to as the rest and digest mode, which is, you know, we don't want to fully be in rest and digest when we're performing. I don't even know if such a thing is possible though, but we don't want to be in such sympathetic response that we are, you know, trembling uncontrollably and barely able to take a breath, which is going to re result in a shaky tone as a singer, for example. Um, so, you know, if, if, if those sort of more folk methods are working for people, then by all means, keep using them. Um, I find it interesting whenever I give talks at colleges or high schools, uh, especially I did that obviously a lot more prior to the pandemic, but I've done some of it um, via Zoom in the pandemic as well. The younger population, generally speaking, has less anxiety, but the younger population tends to think, oh, if that hasn't happened to me yet, then it's never going to happen to me. <laughs> Whereas, you know, I work with plenty very seasoned professionals who have had a crisis maybe middle in their middle of their career or have always coped with a significant amount of performance anxiety, but they've still managed to have a successful career. So I always like to tell people, you know, not to not trying to be a negative Nancy here, but you don't know when it could arise. So why not already have a toolkit? You know, right. already prepared in your pocket so that you can know how to deal with these things when they do come up. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and as you said, I mean, it's, you never know when it's going to happen or how, you know, I've, you know, uh, you know, sung in front of thousands and thousands of people and nothing, you know, I sent, I sing in front of my family and all of a sudden I get <laughs> yeah. choked up. You yeah, know, it's like, yeah, it, yeah. It is, you never know the setting. You never know quite what, mm -hmm. what, you know, what's going to trigger those things. Um, and I think it is, I love that you said that, that it's a practice. Cause I do think that if, if you tend to have, um, an over, um, oversensitive, <laughs> you know, anxiety nerve. Yeah. I, I think, I think that, um, um, 
it, that probably shows up um, in more than just your performance life. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having a practice of, of um, um, you know, I, I want to ask you a little bit about that. Like what are, what are like maybe one or two really key practices that, that people can, um, you know, take away that they can say, okay, if I do this and this, it, it may be something that can, that, that can help me, um, help me with this, this, these issues. Sure. So, um, I have a couple sort of quick ones. Now I will add the caveat that all of these need to be practiced even when we're calmer, because if we are only going to try to remember to use one of these strategies, when we're like at level nine on a scale of one to 10 of nervousness, we're not going to remember. And that's the whole problem is that we don't have enough tools that we build into our everyday lives. So then when the time of high nerves comes in, we don't know what to do. And even if we maybe learn something along the way, if it's not something that we've been practicing on a more regular basis, we're not going to remember because our brain won't allow us to in that highly nervous state. Our brain is very focused on survival and it's not going to um, have be able to um, tap into our powers of higher thinking in the prefrontal cortex when we're when we're highly um, aroused from an, a nervous system standpoint. Um, but one breath strategy that I really like to teach people, um, that's a, a quick and easy one. I think it's one of the simplest ones, very, very effective, but once again, um, needs to be practiced more often. Like sometimes I do this one, if I'm sitting at a stoplight or, um, you know, feeling slightly agitated about something else, I call it a hissing breath. Sometimes I call it a snake breath. And the goal of this is to just take in a really easy inhale through your nose and then hiss out your exhale like a snake for as long as is comfortable. So I'll just do two of them in a row so you can kind of hear. So I'm going to inhale through my nose and hiss out through my mouth. When I come to the end of that breath, I'm just going to do another quick, easy, easy, easy inhale through my nose. and hiss out through my mouth again. Now, the reason that this is powerful and effective is because if we do any type of breathing strategy where our exhale is at least twice as long as our inhale, which in that exercise it definitely is, we automatically stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system response. Once again, that's the rest and digest. So that stimulates the vagus nerve, which is responsible for calming us and gets us into a more parasympathetic response. Now, once again, caveat, because I have a lot of people that I work with who say, oh, I've tried breathing before and it doesn't work for me, to which I say, that's not a thing. You just haven't either been doing it the right way or you haven't been doing it long enough. So Right. When it's biological, trying, yeah. my friend. Exactly. This is biolo- <laughs> This is just biology. You're not special in this way. <laughs> Your nervous system works just like mine. And uh, so what we want to do with, uh, for example, the hissing breath is do those breaths maybe five to 10 times. Take a little break and assess where we're at. Has my anxiety gone down at all? If we think of our anxiety, um, and here's another technique that I'm very fond of is uh, what we call anxiety scaling, where we begin to observe in our everyday lives What does a one on my anxiety scale look like for me? What do I notice? What does a one look like? How, what do I notice physically, emotionally, mentally? What does, let's say a five look like for me? What does an eight, nine, 10 look like for me? And then we can begin, you know, figuring out where our three is and where our seven is. And it's not absolutely imperative that we do all 10 degrees of the scale, but to really get to know ourselves better in this way, because too often what happens is that people are not trained to become aware of where their anxiety is in that current moment, and they don't recognize when it's rising. 
And then if it gets to be the seven, eight, nine on the scale, oftentimes by that time we're in a full-fledged panic and or, God forbid, having a panic attack, which is very uncomfortable for people. And by then it might be too, I don't want to say too late, but it's going to be much, much more difficult to get our anxiety back down to the level of three or four. So what we want to do is we want to begin noticing in our everyday lives, where's my one, where's my three, where's my five, what do I notice in myself? And we just want to become sort of our own little um, rats in our own little laboratory, our, our own scientists, our own rat, our own laboratory, looking at ourselves and just examining without judgment, where am I at? What does that look like for me? So that we can then begin recognizing when we're at our five or six, and then we can employ something like a breathing exercise. Um, so, you know, if you did a couple rounds of these of this hissing breath, for example, hopefully what you would notice is that you had taken your seven to a five to maybe a four, and that would give you a feeling of control over your anxiety. Um, another great thing that I like to have people practice is building some type of um, guided meditation or meditation or breathing or spiritual practice into their everyday lives maybe even into every practice session. For example, coming into the room where I practice and sitting for a moment and doing some breath exercises and or sitting down, popping in my headphones and doing some type of guided meditation that we can find out there on apps or YouTube or wherever. Or for some people, it might be journaling or it might be a brief moment of prayer or whatnot. But having some type of practice to come back down into ourselves to find a little bit more quiet in our physical and emotional and mental experience, and then to go into practicing our craft. And I think if we're doing this on a more regular basis every day, really all this, all this is taking is maybe two to five minutes, 10 minutes maximum. We're then going to recognize its effects long-term. And then hopefully the day of a performance or the day of a bigger rehearsal, we're going to then heavily lean on that practice and maybe extend it a little bit so that we're entering for example, when I'm going to my rehearsal this afternoon, I'm entering at a calmer spot than I would have had I not been paying attention to these things. Right. I, I was going to make a, another reference from what you just said to um, <clears throat> to sports. If we think about warming up um, in music, of course, we're, we might do exercises or warm ups. That, that's just physical. Uh, but in sports, if you're training for you know a very important event. You're doing the physical warm-ups, but you're doing the mental and the psychological warm-ups too. And I don't think we do enough of that in music, at least uh, in my world, that we're, we're not doing a lot of that preparation. So when we, we just practice on our own at home, and then all of a sudden something doesn't go right in the performance. And we think, well, it went per or in a lesson. And uh, the, the common adage is, well, it went perfect, perfectly at home. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, did you practice all of those other preparations? Uh, probably not. Yes, yes, and we're not taught to in, in our community. And um, and in sports psychology, they also heavily rely on visualization strategies. And these have been proven time and time again with loads and loads of research out there to be incredibly effective. You know, for, for me to sit down and to visualize my, let's say, aria going really well and really getting into the sort of kinesthetic visualization of it, not just the visual and also the auditory visualization and sort of immersing myself in the experience of stepping into the future, putting myself in this moment where everything is going just as I want it to. We're strengthening the same neural pathways that we are if we're actually doing the thing. And we're, we're showing the same amounts of brain growth in certain areas. Um, 
so it, that can be an incredibly powerful exercise to go through, but, um, you know, it's just, it is, it's about just building in that little bit of, of mental and emotional warm up into your, your physical warm ups that you do, because I think sometimes we can get a little bit robotic. I mean, I know sometimes I just rush into my practice room and I slam open the piano and I plunk some notes and I start singing scales because, Oh, I've got to get somewhere and I've got to warm up my voice real quick. Cause I've got to get to rehearsal and, and, you know, in an hour and, I'm not really um, taking, you know, that five minutes to get myself into a more focused, calm state of mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I had a teacher once, a fairly big name and, and uh, wonderful inspiration. But I remember he, to, to not not uh, not to play devil's advocate on this issue, but he would say, you can't just go to a concert. Uh, you, you've got to practice. You're not quite prepared and look to the heavens and be inspired. And, you know, God will somehow help you and, and create a miracle. Uh, but by the same token, this visualization of being in the concert and doing all the right things has to be part of the the preparation. Um, you know, so aside from just the practice, the physical practicing, you really have to imagine. And I tell my students, look at the score. Don't get away from the piano and just imagine how it's sounding, what the tone is that you're creating, um, how physically you're even doing these things, because that that starts to, um, uh, you know, uh, lengthen or or support that myelin of um, what, what we're uh, what we're doing and and there's a lot of motor skills that are being developed even if we're just thinking about it so yes definitely um, in fact they've done very interesting research on piano specifically to take people who don't play the piano at all and half of the uh, you know, experiment will will actually practice on a real keyboard, and the other half will just do visualization of learning a piano. And they show very similar amounts of growth in certain parts of the brain in both groups at the end of those experiments. It's really fascinating. Mm. You mentioned uh, before, I think we got on that you went to McGill, and I actually uh, did work in. I, I lived in Montreal for eleven years. Oh, um, very cool. And we're doing another podcast with a friend of mine from New Mexico later today, who who is a PhD candidate at uh, at McGill. Oh, wow. That's so yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I, I did, I'm sure, you know, Brahms, the Brahms project mm-hmm. um, out there. And so I did a number of, of tests and I have a brain scan actually from one of those that you're mentioning where it was very, very similar. We, we played on a dummy keyboard with, uh, in an MRI and then we had to just visualize or hear a melody. And, and it was based, it was, um, testing our memory, our motor skills, some mm-hmm. correlation there. And yeah, it was pretty, pretty fascinating to see a direct correlation between even visualizing or, or doing some of the, the muscle memory, the motions and, and how, um, how much better your memory was and how much more solid it was and how much more confident you would be as a result. That's so cool. How That's so neat that you got to be a part of an experiment like that. I would love to yeah. be involved with something like that someday because it's really just, it's about, once again, these are just body parts and cells and we all have them and there's I think we we do ourselves a disservice when we have this kind of smoke and mirrors thing going on in the music world of well some people are just born more special Uh than others and um you know like I said maybe we're born with a little bit of aptitude for something but the rest of it has to be honed with a lot of, of focused practice and not just sitting down and practicing I think too often the answer for somebody's nervousness I've heard this from actual, you know, music professors before. Oh, well, you're just nervous because you haven't practiced enough. And sure, that might be true some of the time, but that is certainly not true all of the time. And, uh, you know, somebody could practice obsessively and just become more and more anxious as they do it. Mm-hmm. Sure. I, I want to bring up um, one more aspect of this, and, and that's in the moment of crisis. And, and you know, I think about this. 
Um, and, there, and there's the, the, the time, um, and let's imagine that, that we're on stage and we're, we're, we're performing and, and things go horribly wrong. And I think, I think it's important for us to imagine that. And it's important to imagine that beforehand and come up with some strategies, you know, for, for that sure. inevitability. Um, so let's talk about like, like how can we, um, maybe prime the pump a little bit for, for, um, having some strategies for, for when our mind goes completely blank or, you know, we just, you know, we're completely lost or, or, or just anxiety mm-hmm. takes over at the moment. Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, once again, underlining the importance of having some type of pre-performance ritual so that hopefully we're not in such a state of agitation, but of course this being real life, um, I, I like to encourage that people, I I don't think that, you know, I think you could also effectively use visualization in a scenario like this, that you visualize yourself recovering. Now, this wouldn't want, I wouldn't want anybody to have this be the sole visualization practice that they do. I would also want them to spend plenty of time visualizing and doing everything very successfully and very well. But, you know, let's be real. If, If you did crash and burn, if something happened, what would likely need to occur is you would need to, you know, take a moment. Take a few deep breaths, reground yourself, maybe feel your feet on the floor or feel your behind sitting in the chair, laugh, you know, go, okay, this is real life and this is not life or death. It feels very life or death in this moment, but, you know, be able to sort of mentally talk yourself down and say, it's okay. And, you know, once again, taking some deep breaths, getting ourselves back into the experience, our, 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 the experience of the body, you know, tapping into how do I feel? What do I notice? Um, you could do something like a brief, very brief, what we call five senses meditation, where you, um, whether out loud or under your breath or just in your head, you name five things that you see in that moment, you name four things that you hear, you name three things that you feel, you name two things that you smell, one thing that you taste, or maybe you just begin sort of mentally listing things, you know, I see a person smiling at me, I see this color on the wall, to bring ourselves back into the present moment. Because if we have really crashed and burned and we're feeling um, so incredibly anxious, we are in such a high state of agitation that, like I mentioned before, um, our limbic system, which is the sort of fear center and emotion center of the brain, is all lit up. And our prefrontal cortex, which is our higher levels of thinking, is not completely offline, but very more, more offline. So we, if we need to get ourselves out of this pickle, like let's say, remember the words or, um, you know, communicate with the rest of the musicians on stage where we want to restart or wherever it may, whatever it may be, we're likely going to have to get out of that intense fight or flight state, bring ourselves back down to earth a little bit and then restart. Very good. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting, like for, for me, um, uh, when things happen, they have, because your, your heightened sense are so aware of everything, everything sounds, feels like it's happening and mm-hmm. it's taking 10 minutes yeah. taking I like, it seems so <laughs> slow long. motion. And I, yeah. <laughs> right. And then, and then I go back and I'll listen to a recording where I have crashed and burned and I'll be like, Oh, that was like literally you know, a half seconds, a second, yeah. <laughs> <you know? laughs> totally. but everything just happens so quickly. Yeah. And I think, I think it's important for people to remember that, like, it's okay to take a breath. It's okay yeah. to, to reset. It's okay to have a strategy. Um, I remember I, I had a, a student who really, he struggled and he always felt like he was going to forget. 
And I said, you know what? If you end up forgetting your entire piece at the recital, just, you know, slam your hands on the keyboard, stand up, take a big, uh, huge bow and everyone will laugh and it'll be great. And that is in fact what he did. (laughs) (laughs) And it was fine. You know, it turned out fine. But uh, right. But it's sort of what you're talking about is is the ability to um, also calm yourself and comfort yourself through the through your self-talk and say, Likely nobody has noticed this as much as I have. I've been through this before and gotten through it. And then also being able to sort of de-escalate yourself after the fact, right? After you come off stage and most people want to cry and, you know, tear their hair out and go, oh, that was so terrible. It's like, no, it's okay. Probably very few people actually noticed. Um, And, and, you know, de-escalating the whole scenario after the fact as well. Right. (laughs) I I had one, another question too, and, and I, I know Mike also has has a lot more. Um, the uh, the different you know, there people say they're extroverted or they're introverted, uh, or maybe a mixture. But you tend to, uh, I, I hear a lot of friends that they, well, I can't really perform, or I'm I'm not really going to put myself out there. I'm I'm just an introverted person, and uh, that kind of precludes anything. It just stops it right there. <laughs> so what do you what do you say to that? I, I for me, it's more of a spectrum. But still, how do you talk to clients or, or convince them that uh, it's of that issue? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting because I actually consider myself to be an introvert, and people who know me well know that. But um, you know, if somebody sees me in my performing life or at a party or something, um, they they would never guess. So I don't think that being an introvert or extrovert actually has much to do with it at all because I I know a lot of introverts who are performers. Um, in fact, I think many times you benefit from being an introvert because the, the classic description of an introvert is you recharge your batteries by being alone. And what are we doing when we're practicing our music? Frequently, we are there alone for many right, hours right. at a time, <laughs> right? And, and so, yes, I agree with you, Elias, that it exists on a spectrum. But I think if people are saying, if this was a client of mine or, or when I was still teaching voice, a student of mine who said this to me, what I would probably say to them is... I don't know if I fully agree with that because I can think of a lot of examples to the contrary. And I myself am an introvert. I would guess that it has more to do with Mm self-esteem and with belief in your abilities and skills. Mm -hmm. And look, not everybody has to be a performer. If some people are happy just playing for themselves at home, more power to you, go for it. That's fine, right? Not everybody has to be a performer. But I would guess that a lot of these people, you know, when people would come to me for singing lessons and I would have things like recitals and then, you know, half of my studio would say, oh, I don't want to participate in a recital. I would say, but hold on, you're here because your dream is eventually to sing for other people. I know, I think very few of you are here because you just only want to sing for yourself better in the shower. You, you, you know, there is that, that dream underneath it all that I think a lot of people have of being able to get up and perform. And where I think they get mistaken is they think that in order to get up and perform, you have to feel confident and not afraid. But I would venture to say that I don't have to feel confident and unafraid the whole time. I can feel worried. I can feel insecure. I can feel afraid. That doesn't stop me, though, from getting up and doing the thing. I'm always afraid when I get up to perform. Am I also most of the time excited? Yes. There's kind of a combination of some terror and some excitement and hoping things go well and worrying about the things that might go wrong. And, um, you know, 
you don't have to be 100% confident or unafraid in order to perform. In fact, most of us, I would say, are getting up there and we're definitely a mixture of, of all of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I think in performance, and I tell my students this, and, and I'm always surprised when I record, I often record myself so I can hear uh, what it sounded like, because I know in the moment with my heart racing and <laughs> you know my senses heightened, I, I don't really have a realistic um, judge of yes. judgment of how it sounds to everybody else. But but uh, like Mike said too, when you make a mistake, you think it's forever, and it's often just a second or two seconds. Um, but there are certain things that I can do in a performance that I can never do in practice, uh, yeah. just because you have that that blood rushing and. Uh, I think that's a positive thing to tell students too, that, hey, you can you can achieve a lot more than you think. Uh, so just channeling that energy and, and looking at the, the positive side instead of the, the negatives of what you can't do when you're performing. Yeah, and, and knowing too that, you know, even very seasoned performers, I, I always have to laugh after concerts because, you know, people say, oh, well, you just look so comfortable up there and it looks so natural. And sometimes they say this at the performances where I was the most nervous for something. And I think, well, haha, fooled you. You know, that's, that's just right. called acting. <laughs> that's right. all it is. But, you know, our internal experience, so often we feel like it's projected for the world to see, but most of us are pretty sophisticated at hiding it. So mm-hmm. it's not as apparent to others as as uh, as we oftentimes assume that it is, but I think many times people have to learn that one by doing it. Mm-hmm. Well, we're speaking with uh, Ingla Onsted. Um, she is a, a performance anxiety coach. Um, her website is courageousartistry.com. Um, and and I, I don't want to truncate anything, but I I, I really only had I wanted to finish up with asking. Um, cause a lot of my, a lot of our listeners aren't musicians per se. Um, they love music or they love, um, you know, a lot of the content I put out, but we're coming up on, you know, another set of anxieties of, of, you know, 2021 and, and, you know, setting goals and all those, all those sorts of things. How can some of these techniques or, um, how do they directly apply? I mean, I think they do, but how would you say they directly apply to, uh, the, the civilians out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny because in my coaching work, I actually have had, I, I do have some clients who aren't performers, but some of my materials have spoken to them and they've contacted me saying, I think that you could be helpful to me in this, this way, even though I'm not a performer, do you work with non-performers? And I actually do. And it's all very similar, right? None of these techniques that I teach or talk about are music specific. They're human specific. So, um, you know, no matter who we are, we all have goals and dreams and, and challenges in our lives. And we have sometimes, you know, difficulties with our self-esteem or how we talk to ourselves, how we think about ourselves, uh, risks that we're willing to take or not willing to take. But um, I think in in terms of goal setting, and and it's funny that you mentioned this because I'm actually, um, I'm doing a free webinar on January 3rd um, about goal setting for the new years for performers, but anybody's welcome to join. So I've still got a few spots left in that. So if anybody hears this and is interested, just go to my website and there's a tab for a free webinar and you can just register there. Um, but when it comes to goal setting, I think sometimes we, uh, sort of like we're not really taught much about our mental and emotional health growing up. We're also not really taught much about how to set goals effectively. And I think we, we set these kind of quote unquote new year's resolutions and then we fail at them and then we go off to heck with new year's resolutions. They never work anyways, but most of the time it's because we haven't 
maybe been making things specific enough, or we haven't been breaking them down into smaller chunks, or we haven't been taught about habit formation. But, you know, let's say somebody has a goal of, um, I'll take one that a lot of my clients are, are working on right now, um, becoming more present on social media in the new year, because in lieu of, you know, a lot of live performing, they know that they can put more material out there, for example, on their social media. Well, if a person's not doing that, and then they tell themselves, come January 1st, I'm going to start posting, you know, one song a day on social media. I think very few people are going to actually be able to make that happen. And then what happens? Maybe they do it once or twice, or they don't do it at all. And then they blame themselves and judge themselves. They tell themselves, oh, I just don't have the willpower. I'm just weak, or I'm not motivated. And, you know, what they haven't done is they haven't created any type of, of system or, or realistic um, scaling of any type of process. So, you know, for example, with this goal of becoming more present on social media, which, you know, insert your goal here, whether they're health related or fitness related or um, career related, uh, I would help that client break things down into much, much smaller steps. So maybe their step this week would just be create that, you know, Instagram profile if they don't have one yet or create a, a private one that they're not putting out into the world yet. And then maybe the week after that, they would just begin practicing some songs while recording themselves, but not putting it anywhere yet, just recording themselves, you know, with their camera, their phone, their laptop, so that they're getting used to having the camera in the room. You know, maybe after that, they record one thing and they share it with one person who gives them some feedback, but really working to figure out what is, if, if I have this one goal and I want to reverse engineer it, what is baby step number one? Mm -hmm. And then not overwhelming ourselves with 50 baby steps at one time, but just baby step number one on one, one day or one week, and then moving into the next step in the next week so that it all feels actionable and doable. And then we can pat ourselves on the back every week and say, oh, look, I took one more little step towards my goal. So, you know, in the typical kind of New Year's related fitness goals, don't, don't say you're going to run every morning if you've never done that before, you know, maybe Maybe you lay out your clothes for week one, or you make sure you have all your clothes washed and in order. Maybe week two, you put on your sneakers and you walk around the block every day and that's all you do. Right. Right. So just keeping things very manageable and realistic and also celebrating the, um, the small steps that we take. Um, oftentimes I think we, we think, well, if I, we get very all or nothing about it. Like if I, if I didn't run two miles, then you know, <laughs> I failed. I failed, and then oh, I'm I, I'm terrible at New Year's resolutions. Right. <laughs> oh, you know, I think that's to go down that rabbit thing. hole. Yeah. Oh, that you know what, and I think that's powerful because, and and uh, you know, and I'll equate it back to music here real quick because I think. For example, um, because we are emotional creatures, you know, we, we I mean, we're, we're full of all these different little emotions. Um, we tend to equate so much to ourselves. You know, the, the, the piano doesn't know, you know, that, that it's out of tune. The piano doesn't know that, that it doesn't think it messed up. You know, and so it doesn't say, I'm a terrible piano. I'm no yeah, longer a piano. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I'm not worthy of being a piano. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but we do that all the time. You oh, know, yes. we, we, yeah. we make a mistake or we, we don't follow through on a goal. Oh, I'm terrible. I'm, I'm never going to get in shape, you know? Yeah, yeah. We call this process actually in, in psychology, we call it just very simply labeling, right? So if I say, well, I'm stupid and unmotivated, I've just put that label on myself. There's no way to prove that that's true or not true. Perhaps 
with the right help and support, I'd be able to be very motivated and achieve a lot of things. But, you know, we, we, we do, we get very black and white about it and we, we label ourselves and then we suffer under these labels. And um, I think all of us could probably accomplish a lot more in our lives if we just had a system. And also what we need to do is realize that in achieving, let's say some of our biggest performance goals, if we wait too often, like I mentioned before, I think we wait to feel 100% confident or to, to not feel any fear at all. And many times in order to accomplish our biggest goals, I, I firmly believe we're going to have to accept that fear is in the driver's seat or in the passenger seat or in the back seat. That fear is, is going to be part of this and there's nothing wrong with that. I can still act while afraid. I can right. still, for example post to my social media profile, my newest song, even though I'm afraid that the fear doesn't have to stop me. And that actually, if we do it more often while feeling afraid, we'll show ourselves, huh, I didn't die from doing that. The world didn't explode. Um, Maybe next time I do it, I feel slightly less fear. And then it just becomes more of a habit. and, And hopefully at some point we've taken a lot of the fear from the process. Wonderful. Yeah, I, I think you're least, a, a great. Yeah, I think you're all of your talk. Uh, it's such an embodiment of of the reasons. I mean, I always want to bring it back to the value of music and and all the aspects that, that are involved with it, including performance anxiety. And, and we just don't see the value of this often in real life. But there are real life um, uh, applications of this. And this affects us all, not just musicians, not just performers. So I think it's what you're talking about is very important and everybody can relate and see and just see the value in, in studying what we're studying and doing what we're doing. So I, I really thank you for being sort of an avatar of that. Well, thank you. Yeah. I, I feel very passionately about this and I, I feel other than my sort of calling that I feel to sing and be a musician, this is my other main life's work is, is to help people understand that, um, that they're they're so much greater and bigger than they're they're able to imagine and that they can take risks and that they can learn how to do things that they once thought were impossible and it's not magic it's just finding a process it's learning how to speak to yourself differently it's learning some coping skills and strategies it's having you know supportive people around you it's it it really it it doesn't take much it's not that you're born with it or you're not born with it Mm -hmm. yeah that's that's awesome it really is. Well, I, we're, we're again speaking with um, uh, Ingela Onstead. Um, her website is CourageousArtistry.com. You can also find her on Facebook at Courageous Artistry and on Instagram. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Fabulous. I really appreciate you uh, being on the show. I think we've gotten a lot of great wisdom. I hope you'll come on again. I'd love to. That'd be fabulous. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. And this is And If Love Remains.